0: super talk mississippi media production
1: have you been seriously injured mama justice is here for you our medical team partners with top-notch doctors surgeons therapists and urologists ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey if you've been injured call mama justice today we're here for you
0: it's a great time to live in mississippi and we're talking about it welcome to the ricky matthew show on super talk mississippi
1: Welcome to the Ricky Matthews Show from the Citizens Bank Studio. I want to and uh, uh, to, to welcome our our listeners from the Jackson and Delta markets. Of course, here, uh, my Mississippi Coast listeners appreciate you continuing to join us. The feedback on the show continues to be outstanding as we continue to celebrate so many amazing men and women who are working hard to make this a better state to live work and play. I've got a couple of quotes for you. The first one, actually, is from Ernest Hemingway. and Listen, by the way, when I think about Ernest Hemingway, I think about a man that I've read just about everything he's written, if not everything he's written. Along the way, I introduced my son, Justin, to Ernest Hemingway. He got pretty enthralled with his writing. He read The Sun Also Rises along the way, and uh, for people who don't know what that book's about, it's really about some expatriates who travel to uh, the the Festival of San Fermin in, in Pamplona, uh, uh, Spain, and they run with the bulls there. And my son went to Madrid to learn Spanish, and while he was there, he went on a train over to Pamplona, ran with the bulls, with some locals, I might add, almost was gored at Dead Man's Pass, uh, Dead Man's Corner, and, but he made it out safely and whatever, but uh, I could blame Ernest Hemingway for introducing him to, uh, to to that love of exploration. That that is for sure. But but Ernest Hemingway said this a long way. It takes two years to learn to speak, and sixty to learn to keep quiet. <laughs> How many people do you know that that fits? Sixty to learn to, to keep quiet. Here's one that I shared on on my Monday uh, this past Monday on Super Talk Outdoors. A true, contra- a true contra- conservationist is a man who knows that the world is not given by his fathers, but borrowed from his children. Whoo, man, that is strong. That is really strong. You know, I think uh, too much of the work of the, of the efforts around outdoors, like, for example, the Wildlife Commission in Mississippi, too much of their work goes unnoticed. And people don't pay a, a close enough attention to the decisions they make and the actions that they take. Um, I want to tell you that if you missed this past Monday, Super Talk Outdoors, go find it, especially if you're interested in the outdoors. You can find it on Facebook or YouTube or your favorite podcast. I'm going to be talking a lot more going forward uh, about the efforts of the commission and essentially the the work around the state's wildlife policy. It's important that we build it on integrity and fairness and good science and what I refer to as the common good you know we're going to we're going to definitely talk more about that i think at the end of the day when we make our decisions in a vacuum without public comment and when we talk about what we're going to decide in in backroom meetings or that are often outside the public eye, and when there's political favoritism involved, Mississippi ultimately loses. So, as we go forward, we're going to be talking a lot more about that. So, join me. Whether you're enjoying the outdoors or not, you may not even be involved in the outdoors, but it's a multi-billion-dollar economy where all we're all benefiting from that. Uh, every Monday at lunch, uh, every Monday at lunch at noon, we celebrate Mississippi's outdoors. Okay, let's shift gears now. I've been really looking forward to this conversation we're going to have today. The whole show is going to be spent with my friend, my new friend, Lucian Smith. If you go to his Twitter account, X account, what he says about himself is that he's a lucky husband and father working to make Mississippi a better place. And he's also, at times, sits behind the, Mac, Ma- the mic at Super Talk Mississippi, and he's someone I'm really looking forward to getting to know better. Lucian, how you doing, my friend?
2: I'm doing great, Ricky. I Appreciate you uh, you having me on. I've, I've also been looking forward to this. It, you know, you feel like you know people when you hear them on the radio, but I, I don't know that you and I have ever actually talked before. So this is nice.
1: No, I think you. I think listen, you do a gr- great job when you sit in for okay. uh, for Gerard, or from time to time even Paul. I think you sat in for but you you've done a good job. You got a good. You got a long history. Uh, You've actually been a candidate yourself. You've worked for for Governor Barber and Governor Bryant, and um, you're a former chair of the Mississippi GOP. You're an an advisor, a legal – you're in the legal business. Um, So there's a lot to talk about, but I actually want to go back further. You know, yeah. I want to talk about where you grew up and where where some of your influences came from. Where did you grow up, Luci- Lucian?
2: So I grew up in Jackson. Uh, my my family, for the most part, is from the Golden Triangle area. My grandfather was from a little community called Double Springs in western Oktibbeha County. Uh, my grandmother, on the other side, was from West Point, uh, and both of my parents uh, graduated from Starkville High School. So that's where most of my uh, aunts and uncles my grandparents when they were alive lived in Starkville so Jackson was home I was born out in Flowood and uh, went to school in uh, in Jackson but uh, the Golden Triangle area Starkville in particular has always felt a little bit at least as much as Jackson is as home for me because that's where everybody was from and where we used to spend a lot of time in the summer a lot of time on the weekends uh, when I was little.
1: Lucian, did you always have an interest in politics and the political process and government? Where did that come from?
2: So my my father uh, is a lawyer, and when he he worked for the Brunini law firm uh, when when I was a kid in the seventies and eighties, and he had this. I assume it was some obligation that had been given to him by more senior lawyers to go to the victory parties. And back in the eighties. Almost all the victory parties for the statewide candidates were at the old Coliseum Ramada, uh, which it went through a few different names before it was torn down. But you could go and it really was a great setup because the governor would have the big ballroom, whoever the the gubernatorial candidate was. And then in the smaller ballrooms, you'd have the lieutenant governor and the auditor and all the other statewide uh, officeholders tended to book something there. And so he had to go for professional reasons, and I think probably to give my mother a break, took his kid with him, um, and I was just fascinated by it. And you know, at 6, 7, 8, you're not jaded. You see these people in the front of the room saying, here's how we're going to fix Mississippi, and you think, wow, this is an incredible deal. People are talking about how they're going to improve people's lives, how they're going to make this a better place to be. You know, At, at 43, I view it with a little more jaundiced eye than I might have uh, in the 80s, but at the time, it was just it just excited me this idea that there were people who did this, and so I, I, it was an interest I had from a very early age.
1: Well, it's interesting to see that. So you, you ultimately, uh, I will assume, in high school, got act more active, and in college, got more active, and ultimately decided to go to law school. Talk to me a little bit about that process.
2: So, um, yeah, I was, you know, back in. I graduated from high school in 1999, and sort of interesting how the culture has shifted. I mean, I was very much a Republican. It was part of my identity that I was a conservative in high school, which 25 years ago was kind of weird. I mean, that everybody didn't have at 16, 17, 18, some obligation to declare a political affiliation in a way that now I think people you know, wear their politics that young, like people wear their religion. Um, But that was sort of an identity of mine um, that I was I'd always I I got interested in conservative politics. I probably didn't really have a political affiliation back in the 80s. But by the time I got to high school, realized I was uh, was a conservative, believed in uh, conservative policy and was supporting Republican candidates. And then uh, I I went to to Harvard uh, for my undergrad, uh, which, as as you were aware, I mean, by today's standards, the Harvard of 1999 was probably pretty moderate, but to me, in 1999, it was a far, far-left place, and you you tended to get pulled in one of two directions. The the people who showed up who didn't have any real ideological leanings, political thoughts, you got shifted at least to the center-left. You tended to get pulled uh, back to what then would have been the far-left, and the handful of folks who... who showed up who had more conservative leanings kind of grouped together. So I, I got involved in the, what was called the Harvard Republican Club. Uh, and it, it was a, I would guess that the Harvard Republican Club in the 90s and early 80s was probably more conservative than the Republican groups you would have found at any school in Mississippi at the time because you had to be a, a, a true believer to end up in a conservative group in Harvard then and now.
1: It's a great experience to get that perspective. I, I literally uh, considered Harvard myself and ultimately decided against it. Um, I, I, I should note, though, when I retired in 2016, because I'd been involved in some significant digital uh, transformation efforts, uh, I was actually offered a Harvard fellowship. Really? But yeah, unfortunately, so I retired in January, and at the end of January, I would have had to move. To Cambridge, <laughs> so oh, wow. I I didn't retire to go back to work. And of course, you know how the fellowship works. You're there for a year, um, you get paid, but not a lot of money. But you you know you, the opportunity to collaborate. One of the good things that would have come out of it, incidentally, was they 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 asked that you write a book. They want you to write a book about your experience. And that would that would have been good to do. But by the time I retired, my friend, I was so burned out, I was I was ready to not work and to really kind of clear my head. But you know, I I often think about what that experience would have been like because I would have been going there in the midst of the digital, you know, revolution, as media companies were exploding left and right, and as we saw, you know, that the way that social media was changing the world, it would have been a really really dynamic place and time to be at Harvard to have the opportunity to be engaged in those conversations so I sort of I hate that I missed that opportunity but personally I wasn't ready to to retire and then head back up to Harvard.
2: So that's, a, that's a big transition after
1: retiring. No, no doubt about it, no doubt about it. Hey when we come back on the other side we're going to continue our conversation with, uh, with Lucian as we continue to learn more about what makes him tick we'll see you after this.
0: and love for Mississippi is why he's here. This is the Ricky Matthew Show on Super Talk Mississippi.
1: Welcome back to the Ricky Matthews Show. As we continue our conversation with Lucian Smith, who is he sits in here on SuperTalk Mississippi Media, pretty regularly. You hear his voice pretty regularly. I'm look I've been looking forward to getting to know him better. You know, Lucian, before we get back to your path, one, one one quick comment about the Golden Triangle. If I look back on shows we've done over a thousand conversations since we first started this show. And one of the ones that I, or actually more than more than one time, obviously have had a moment. But having the opportunity to visit with Joe Max Higgins, who, as you know, is the CEO of the Golden Triangle Development Link in in that area. Um, first of all, what an what an interesting personality! What a driven economic developer! What success he's been able to put in the ground there. Um, You know, we're lucky in this state to have some economic development folks that really get it. And at a time when we've got a governor that's going to stake his entire legacy on economic development, Um, at at just about every step of the way, we've got some good people there, don't we?
2: Absolutely. It really has been exciting to see what's happened there uh, and in other parts of the state. And Joe Max is extraordinary. And it really is. I mean, you know, having grown up going to, Starkville and West Point uh, it, it, and Columbus, but more of the connections were in Starkville and West Point, it, it, you know, that, that stuff, at least I didn't notice anything like that 25 years ago, right? and I think Joe Max deserves just an awful lot of credit because it's a, it's a region of the state that's booming now in a way that I don't think anybody imagined a quarter century ago, and it's, it's a good thing for the state.
1: Well, you know, we talk about the coast a lot because the coast is a huge and important economic engine. When you think about, uh, you know, these bookends, one being Ingalls and Chevron on one side and all the businesses to support them and then Stennis Space Center with the blue chip industries that are part of that and then in between hospitality and gaming, I mean, no one, no one would argue that the coast of Mississippi is not an economic engine. But it's easy to sort of overlook some of these other areas. And one of, the, one of the interesting conversations that Joe Max and I had was about where these economic engines are. But certainly, the Golden Triangle is one of them for sure. And Absolutely. I mean, it's really amazing the, the explosive growth that has taken place there.
2: It, yeah, it really is uh, just the way that uh, industrial park is filled up and the effects it's had on the community up there. I mean, just people you, you can see it. You know, Starkville's the part of the Golden Triangle where we spend the most time and um, we be in my family. And you, you can tell the difference that that's broad as you've got executives coming in looking for houses. You know, you've got uh, we're not the coast yet in terms of our, our restaurant and, and bar scene. But it is a heck of a lot different than it was in 1997. I mean, and that's directly attributable to all the work Joe Max and other folks have done in that area.
1: Yeah, I think I think one of the more important conversations we're going to have in this state going forward is something we've learned a lot about since Hurricane Katrina. We had to learn this lesson. We had it was a hard lesson and we had to learn it. And that is that it, one of the things that we've got to be focused on as a state is one of the things I think is going to contribute to reducing the brain drain that we're experiencing is by thinking more about building the kind of places that people want to live in. I mean, that's so important. People want to live, work, and play in a similar area. So one of the things that's emerging here all along coastal Mississippi, you name the city, we can go deep into what's happening in that specific city. But it's um it's, you know, the, the emergence of mixed use, the, the, a, lot of, a lot of development of, of residential happening downtown now. We, the goal is to bring people downtown, more restaurants opening, more life coming back. And again, young people want that. They want to be able to, to, to work, and a lot of them remotely. They want to be able to work, and they want to be able to walk out and go down the street and go eat lunch and, and whatever the situation may be. We're doing that now, and you alluded to it uh, just a second ago. I think... You know, one of the areas that we're going to be having a lot of conversations, really, is how do we take the best practices that are actually taking place in coastal Mississippi and, and learn from those and roll those out to other parts of the state? That's really important, isn't it, my friend?
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And people, obviously, your coast listeners are well aware of, of how well our coast is doing. But it, it's something that people from other parts of the state ought to make a point of going to the Gulf Coast and seeing everything that's done right there because um, you're you're right especially when we talk about brain drain. I mean, young people want to live in a city. They want for the most part. They want to live where things are going on. Um, you know, you get to be at my age and older, and the idea of being in suburbia and having to hop in your car and drive somewhere and having a big yard is appealing. At 22, it's not. Uh, and going to places where you're able to, you know, walk to lunch, walk to supper, uh, go meet friends somewhere that doesn't involve getting in a car and where there's a lot of that clustered and you really, you know it better than I do, but that's one of the beauties of, of the Gulf Coast. I'll tell you, it's one of the downsides to not being chairman of the party anymore is I used to have a regular excuse to get to the coast. Uh, and I, I don't make it down as much as I used to, but it, it really is a jewel that uh, I don't know that everybody in the state of Mississippi, we don't do a good enough job of coming and enjoying that part of the state, the folks who, who aren't from there.
1: Someone said we need to build the kind of places where people can find a spouse. <laughs> I think
2: that, That's a great point.
1: What a great way to look at it. That that's for sure. So okay, you're you're in high school and you're you're thinking about what you're gonna do next. You go into co- you go into college, you decide you wanna be a lawyer. Um, did you know early on you wanted to do that? Is that something you just evolved into?
2: You know, I, I wish I could tell you it was this deeply thoughtful process. Uh, my, my father was a lawyer, uh, and all I wanted to do when I was little was be like daddy. And uh, he was a lawyer, so I was bound and determined I was going to go to law school. And like a lot of lawyers, he he told me, you really ought to go to business because if you become a lawyer, what you're gonna going to do is go to the people who are in business and try to get them to give you legal work. You ought to go be a businessman and have the lawyers come call on you. But I, it just... Did not cross my mind. I wanted to be a lawyer uh, like my father, and, and law school was was always the plan.
1: Well, see, along the way, once you became a lawyer, you started getting really involved in Republican politics and understanding policy and what it takes to make good policy happen, and understanding better the legislative process, working with governor. Um, um, Barber, who I think is one of the best governors we've ever had. I mean, I had the honor of writing the foreword to his book, America's Great Storm. But the, the leadership he provided after Hurricane Katrina was <laughs> beyond phenomenal. Um, what was that like to work with him?
2: It, it was a it really a, one of the great experiences of my life. I, I worked for Governor Barber twice. I, when I, gra- I graduated from high school I and, mean, excuse me, from college in 2003, and my first job out of college, about three weeks later, was working for uh, Henry Barber on Haley's uh, first race for governor, and it was a, a great learning experience for me. I mean, I had volunteered on campaigns, but I had never done the real full-time work of, of working on a campaign. And I, you know, I was six rungs below Henry, but uh, who was the campaign manager? But it was a great team, and, and a, you know, really a campaign like we hadn't seen in terms of the staffing. At the the time, it was a record in terms of how much money they were able to spend. And then I worked for him briefly in 2004 in that first legislative session um, and then went off uh, for a while. And when I graduated from law school, came back and worked for a federal judge in Jackson and got an offer to come back and work on his legal staff and help do some of the budget work during that Great Recession period. And it was just you know, the thing that's so wonderful about Governor Barber is, and I think it, it is a great definition of his leadership, he didn't always tell you what you wanted to hear. You know, he wasn't afraid to say, we need to do this thing that you're not going to like, but he would engage on it. And I think that was sort of one of his real superpowers as governor is, and you remember it on the coast when they changed the law regarding the distance for, you know, bringing the casinos on shore. There were a lot of people in Mississippi who were vehemently against that. And it would have been an easy political thing to do to just sort of say, well, we'll see who'll stay and who won't, and maybe the coast will recover. And instead, Haley leaned in, made this point, wasn't afraid to get in a fight with the people who said this is evil, we got to get rid of gaming. He explained why it was vital. And and ultimately, with that and some of the other areas, he was successful because of that willingness to figure out what he thought was right, to do it, but to take the time to explain clearly— this is why I'm doing this, this is why it's the right thing. This is why you ought to agree with me. And even I think for the most part, people can respect somebody who they disagree with if they feel like they'll at least take that time to actually articulate, this is why I believe what I believe as opposed to saying it's my way or the highway. And, and I think that was the thing that Haley was best at.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a great example. Uh, as the as a as a vice chairman of the governor's commission on recovery, rebuilding, and renewal, we hired Henry as our executive director, and I got the, a chance to really get to know Henry really well. And it was, uh, and we were all focused on doing whatever we had to do, to to bring coastal Mississippi back. But Haley's mission, I, I had my, my area of responsibility was tourism. And of course, the 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 need to change that law was extremely important to all of us, obviously. But Haley, he put it in very simple terms. He said, "We got to get people, we got to get their kids back in school," which he did by October. We got to get people we got to give casino companies an opportunity to rebuild. And the only way they were going to have clarity about that is if they could know they could build on land. And we had to give people a place to live. And, you know, we could focus on all three of those things, that we'll have at least an opportunity to rebuild. Um, i got a quick story I'm going to tell you about Haley on the other side. I've got lots and lots of Haley stories, but one that I think you'll enjoy. And um, as we uh, continue our conversation with Lucian Smith when we come back on the other side, we'll see you after this break. Oh!
0: of Mississippi. It's the Ricky Matthews Show on Super Talk Mississippi.
1: Welcome back to the Ricky Matthews Show from the Citizens Bank Studio. And I'm visiting with my friend, Lucian Smith. Who has been very active in the Republican Party? He's uh, he watches the the, the situation in Mississippi very closely, and uh, he sits in here at Super Talk Mississippi Media on a on a pretty regular basis. So you know his voice well. When we went to break, though, we were talking about the time he spent with uh, Haley Barber a couple of different times, and um, and then I was mentioning that I'll, I'll share a quick story with you. I remember the the first time that he came by for an editorial board. When I was president and publisher of The Sun here, came by for an editorial board meeting when he was running for governor. It had a great, we had a great conversation. As you know, every, every, every conversation with Haley is always dynamic because you get to see his still-trap mind in action. So we get done with the meeting, and... Um, and we're about to we're about to kind of wind it down. said, so, well, thank you very much, uh, Haley, for visiting with us. You know, you know, good luck to you. We look forward to visiting again. And we start to stand up, and he says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, stop!" He said, "Look, I want to say this. I I really, really would appreciate your vote. I really would appreciate your vote." And I thought, well, that, no one's ever asked us for their vote before during an editorial board meeting. But then he says, "But I covet your endorsement." <laughs> I've, never, I've never heard anyone say it like that. Of course, we Gosh, we ultimately like a, did endorse him, as you can imagine. And, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history. Hey, one other, one other quick kind of side note. We were in at a tour board meeting after Hurricane Katrina, and we were just kind of getting an update and whatever. We got into a conversation about some of the challenges that Hancock County was having, because if there was a ground zero for Hurricane Katrina, it was Hancock County. And we got into something specific about Waveland. Somebody asked a question about Waveland, and you could literally watch him in his mind open up a file that had Waveland attached to it, and he and he began to dive deep into some of the federal grant programs that were. I mean, I'm talking about numbers and everything about what was happening in Hancock and in, in in Waveland and it, and i actually wrote about that in the book i, I it, it was you know in with all the complexity of the things that were happening in his life the amazing amount of time he was spending in washington dc to get alignment around the billions of dollars we needed to rebuild he could open that file in his brain and dive deep into any subject you wanted to talk about and numbers and the like this man he, i mean not only was he a, a good leader but haley you know, I Obviously, still today, this is true. Um, had him on the show recently, and he's done a great job recovering from his from his car wreck. But but his mind is something to watch, isn't it?
2: Oh, he's just a brilliant person. Se- separate from his political acumen uh, and his leadership abilities, he's just a brilliant person. I mean, I I remember you know part of my job when I worked for him that second time when I was with him for a while was helping to put budgets together during that great recession period, and. You would sit in these, whenever we put the executive budget recommendation out, and the law requires the governor to put the EBR out uh, every year by November 15th, except in election years. And so you would go through sometimes 50 different spreadsheets where the accounting team at DFA had put together a balanced budget, and he would make changes to the budget. And then you could see him, and because he would announce it, he would do in his mind the math to be able to tell you what kind of change it was. And oftentimes he'd go to the second or third decimal point and say, you know, I think that's going to be an 8.247% reduction. (laughs) And almost every time he came close to being right, you know, I've over there playing on my (laughs) phone, trying to get the numbers and the accountants were too. And Haley was doing it in his mind, which I've always thought is just one of the great uh, tests of raw intelligence. Certainly not one I've got.
1: Hey, listen, I, I worked with a guy once on a I, – I, I co-led strategic planning for Knight Ritter uh, at the time, 26,000 employees, second largest newspaper company in America. I worked with a guy who had a, a literal photographic memory, and he was a financial guy, so he could take a 250-page uh, spreadsheet and he could say on page thirty-two, line twenty-two, divide by you know, page seven, line thirteen. And he did it in his mind, and he did it like I mean, like playing Mozart on a piano. Those people, it's just fun to watch them and and their doing doing stuff like that. That that's for sure. Hey, it's just kind of interesting stuff to talk about. But hey, listen, Lucian, so. You know, as you get further on in your life, you ran for public office at one point. You've uh, you've really, I-, I would say, solidified what your conservative views toward the world are. You've watched our state play in in that in that space. Uh, you, you know we can talk about what's happening on the federal level and the impact that cut that you know the degradation of media and the rise of social media and the lack of trust in news outlet. We could talk about all those things and how they contributed to toward a polarized world that we live in. But in Mississippi, we still are able to actually create bipartisan efforts. Oddly enough, we're still able to find bipartisanship. On a, on a number of different things, whether it be education or economic development. And that's good to see, isn't it?
2: It is. It is. And, and I think it's a testament to, for one, how our le- part of it is how our legislature works. You know, they act, they, my sense, and I'm not as familiar with the day to day operation of Congress as I am the day to day operation of the Mississippi legislature, but they actually have to work together. You know, my sense of, of how Congress works is that, you know, they've got their office building separate from the floor on both sides. and... They show up for their vote, and then they separate and go back to their offices. And I'm, I'm not sure, outside of the very senior leadership, that many of the Republicans know many of the Democrats. I think the handful of times that happens, it tends to be, uh, you know, oftentimes becomes news that somebody's friends with such-and-such such Democrat. Uh, but you don't hear much of that anymore, either at the federal level. And I think at the state level, what's different for people—obviously, you know this, but people who don't, you know, watch it as closely— They are on that floor almost all the time when they're in session. They're not rushing back to their separate little offices and being away from it. When they're doing floor work, they're all out there. They're eating lunch together. They're having supper together. I mean, there are real relationships, and it's a lot harder to think somebody's evil when you've had dinner with them, you know their family, you watch them operate as a human being. And I just don't think that happens. And we also don't have—and I think this is a good thing— we don't really have that cable news ecosystem in Mississippi. I mean, obviously, super talk is not a left-leaning outlet. But what it's not is the sort of outlet where all you turn it on and all you hear all day is how the Mississippi Democrats are evil. They're coming to take your children. They're awful people. And whereas, you know, the people I know on both sides—and there's, there's a role for cable news. I mean, I, I, I watch cable news sometimes, too— but the folks I know who turn cable news on first thing in the morning and basically keep it on until the end of the day, it's not healthy. I mean, it, it, is, it is bad for your brain. It is bad for how you think about the world. And I think we're fortunate that we don't have it. I've told people, again, there, there's great work being done in cable news. But so much of it is just just—it's uh, <laughs> it, it, rage porn. It is to sit there and make and let you know how evil the other side is. And how right you are, and if you consume that stuff, you know, eight hours a day, pretty soon you're going to be convinced the other side is totally evil, and they're they're often wrong, but I don't think they're often evil.
1: And then what happens is the more you consume that kind of information, it then informs the algorithm in your social media feed, and you get fed more of it. <laughs> it's, right. it's it's not good. Hey, actually, Haley said on the show recently. Uh, you kind of hit on it big time, actually. He said the single biggest issue he believes that exists in Washington D.C. today is the fact that the the senators and representatives don't know each other. They 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 go up there, they do their thing, and as soon as the session's over, they haul back to home. A lot of you know, in the old days, they used to live there and they used to spend time together. They used to get together socially, and he you know he had the benefit of watching. Um, you know, Tip O'Neill, obviously, uh, communicate with, with, with Ronald Reagan and watch their, you know, have a drink together. And and, and well, they didn't agree on most anything relative to policy, but they respected each other and they spent social time together. So there was... You know, we could disagree with each other on issues, but we could still like each other. But today, the way it works is we we can't like each other. In fact, if you like anyone from the other side, you're a bad guy. And people will kind of work to counsel you. That's a terrible trend in America. Thank God that's not happening in Mississippi.
2: I I completely agree with you. And it's what makes compromise virtually impossible. I mean, I'm very far to the right on policy issues. I would love to see Congress do lots of things that they'll never do because we are a massive country and you're never gonna be able to get the representatives from California to do what I would like them to do. So I'll take 80% of what I want if I gotta give away 20%, but that's just not the way politics works right now. If you compromise, you're a sellout and you've got people, and it's creeped in from time to time in the Mississippi legislature, but for the most part, we don't have it. You've got people at that federal level who would rather fight and achieve nothing than compromise and get 80% of what they say their stated goals are. And I think as a country, we'd be a lot better off if we could get back to that. And I think we'd be even better off if everyone agreed with me and did exactly what I thought they should do. But in reality, that's not the way government works. You got to compromise and you would be better off getting 80% or 60% rather than getting zero.
1: I love, to see, I love to see when our legislature gets together and does important things around economic development. Like I said a minute ago, the Outdoor Stewardship Trust Fund, overwhelmingly bipartisan, generational build is going to be good for our state for many years to come. Hey, when we come back on the other side with Lucian, we're going to talk a little bit specifically about why this legislative session might be different than the others. We'll come back after this.
0: Now back to more of the Ricky Matthews show on Super Talk Mississippi.
1: Welcome back to the Ricky Matthews show from the Citizens Bank Studio. I have my friend Lucian Smith with us today, and we just covered a little bit about you know his path and what brought him into sort of a relevant part of the conversation. He obviously sits in at Supertalk Mississippi Media on a pretty regular basis and um, someone I'm really enjoying getting to know better. You know, Lucian, I do think with a new speaker and a lieutenant governor that is, obviously he's probably one of the most detail-oriented lieutenant governors we've ever had, with an economic development governor probably unlike any we've ever had these guys, all three of them, and the people who work with them, are on a mission, aren't they?
2: They are, they are. And you alluded to this before the break, but it's it's sort of a unique situation. And I, maybe I could go back and think of a of a similar one in the modern era. But in the era where governors have been able to succeed themselves, um, you know, th- this is I think is going to be unique in the sense that my sense is Jason White. Uh, the, the new speaker of the house has no ambition to run for anything other than speaker of the house obviously lieutenant governor Hoseman has said he may run for governor in the future but i think it just mathematically more of his political career is behind him than is before him even if he's got uh, eight, uh excuse me two terms as governor after he finishes his term as lieutenant governor and governor reeves may run for something else in the future but he is term limited so you've got the three the big 3 offices of state in terms of policymaking, all of them uh, essentially are at the end of their sort of electoral ambitions. And I think that that probably does free them up to do big things, because, as you know, if if you do something legislatively, if you do anything in the policy arena and everyone thinks it's great, it probably wasn't that transformation. If you don't have a decent number of people who have fought it and told you it's terrible, then you probably have come up with some sort of compromise that's not going to be that big. And so I think the three of them do have some real freedom, uh, assuming those assumptions are accurate, to, to make some big changes this session.
1: And listen, uh, have, J- Jason White will uh, be joining me on my show soon, and we're going to spend an hour together getting to know him better. Um, so I don't know him yet. But what I have read about him, and I've read extensively about him, Everything that I read and everything that I see, I like it. I mean, number one, he's a super smart guy. Um, He is incredibly focused. Um, He's not into, you know, my sense is that he's very, very ethical and with high integrity runs his office. So you can't just glad hand him. And gets and be successful. That's my read on him already. That he's coming in. He's going to be a man focused on getting the job done, and all the all the trappings of the job is not. He's not. He doesn't seem interested in it. That's what I. That's that's my early read on it.
2: I, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I've watched uh, and gotten to work with Jeff during his time in the legislature, and really hold him in very high regard. And you're absolutely right. He. You know, nobody runs for office who doesn't have a decent concept of their self. Uh, and, you, and frankly, you wouldn't want somebody to run for office who'd say, I, I don't know, there are probably a thousand people that do a better job, but what the heck? I mean, you want somebody who says, I've got good ideas and I'm going to implement them. But you don't get from Jason a lot of ego. It doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to be about the trappings of the office. It's about what he can get done there. And I, I think he will do a great job. And I, I continue to hold his predecessor, Philip Dunn, in very high Regard for a lot of the same reasons, but I, I think I think Speaker White is gonna is gonna be a great speaker. I think he'll be very popular, and I think he'll get a lot done.
1: Yeah, I mean, what Philip did changing the state flag alone, man. I mean, that what a what a Herculean effort and what great leadership. leadership he provided on that. You know, man, we could we could spend a whole day talking about advancements we've made in Mississippi. You know, I I think uh, creating broadband access in places that didn't have access before, I have a place up in the Mississippi Delta. I've never seen so much Fiber optic cable getting laid. I'm I'm talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of miles. That's gonna that's revolutionary. You think about uh, g- this whole notion around getting kids to their reading their their reading level before they go into fourth grade. Revolutionary kind of stuff. And then you know I believe that school choice. You can already see the opposition talking about it, but school choice is going to be a major positive for Mississippi. And parents are, are are much more empowered today because of the pandemic. What they learned during that time and if i worked in the if i worked and had kids in the mississippi delta and i wasn't happy with my schools but i didn't have the means to have other choices i'd be super frustrated and this is an opportunity to give every mississippian potentially an opportunity to have some choice and i think these are important conversations aren't they
2: i absolutely agree and look we've got super supermajor- the republicans have super majorities in both chambers and i think it's important i hope we'll keep those super majorities for the rest of my life But it's important that while we have that ability, we do big things. I mean, biting around the edges, doing incremental stuff, isn't going to make big change. And a perfect example is the 2013 education reform bill. You know, Governor Bryant made this decision his second full year in office that he was going to take all of his political capital. And he was very popular at the time. Still, I think, very popular. But he was very popular at the time. And rather than having what most governors do and having kind of a scattershot approach... To his policy agenda, we put all of uh, those eggs in one basket for an education reform bill, and the, the educational establishment came out. There were a lot of people who said, "Let's do something a little more minor," but he led, and big things happen, and, and that's what we need to be doing now.
1: I, I think I think we are going to have really big, important debates about some big and important subjects that could be transformative for our state, just like we have in the past. So listen up. Hey, Lucian, I can't wait to have you back on. We'll get you back on and go deeper into some of these issues. It's been a pleasure, my friend.
2: Hey, me too, Ricky. Thanks so much for having me.
1: You bet. This has been Lucian Smith. Listen, have a great day, and we will see you tomorrow.